Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad you are here. This is a show where you might hear a little bit of a fandemonium from me because I have a guest coming on who has been somebody I have followed and read and admired for a long time. And so it's my first time talking to him. So you'll have to, you know, just see the stars in my eyes when the time comes. But before we get there, I am I'm delighted to tell you about a few things. I want to make sure you know that this podcast is sponsored by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are training trusted leaders for faithful churches. We do that through a variety of programs, lay initiatives like the Wesley Institute, which starts this September after Labor Day. It's a, a study session that goes through every book of the Bible with seminary professors for nine months. And then we have our bachelor's, master's, and doctor of ministry degrees that are available for folks. We have a great enrollment, the highest enrollment we've ever had coming this fall, but there's still room for you. So we'd love for you to check it out at wbs.edu. And also, if you're interested in things coming from this podcast at andymillerthe3rd.com, that's andymillerii.com, I'm offering a free resource for people. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. And it is a 45-minute teaching session and an eight-page document that's available for teachers and preachers to help them go deeper in their study of scripture so that they can be prepared to present and teach in their given context. And the other piece I want to mention coming from my website is this new study I have on the book of Jude. It's six weeks. And particularly as people are kind of getting themselves ready for fall programs and that type of thing, it's six sessions, five hours of content, looking at this powerful little book with 25 verses that a lot of times we forget about in our Christian journeys. But I found it to be incredibly relevant to our time, particularly as we think about the challenges of the sexual revolution and the call to contend for the faith once for all delivered to saints. So check that out. There is a, a small group session. There's a group package. There's all kinds of th ways that th this material can get to you. And we'd love to get this into your hands if possible. And that's connected in part to the, the idea of Jude and being a contender is connected to what we're going to talk about today. It's an interesting emphasis that we have to be able to think about the challenge that we have in front of us in that comes from society and culture as a whole, and liberal theology. And I am delighted to welcome to the podcast Dr. Roger Olson, who is the Emeritus Professor of Theology at Baylor University's Truett Seminary, which is in Waco, Texas, but I don't think he lives there anymore. Dr. Uh, Olson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. Now, I, I imagine that several people who listen to my podcast are, are also uh, your fans, like I am, I kind of cut my teeth. I, I study historical theology uh, as my scholarly discipline, but my kind of like first textbook to to work through that discipline came with your um, the story of Christian theology, and then your mosaic of Christian belief. Uh, I can I could keep listing the various books that you've written that have had a great impact on me. But I don't know if you know this, but many evangelical Wesleyans are use your resources in classrooms. It is a real delight to have a chance to talk with you. Well, I'm very glad for that. Thank you. And it's good to talk to you too. Now, just thinking of that, I know just reading your books and in your blog as well, which we'll have a link to that in our show notes. Um, I know that your, your kind of story as a whole, like you're coming to faith where you, you serve kind of connects with that revivalistic tradition and, and, and even the, the kind of the, the evangelical revival as a whole. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. I'll try to keep it as brief as I can. <laughs> My uh, great grandparents were Danish immigrants. And when they found land on the Eastern Plains of South Dakota, the nearest church was a church of God, Anderson, Indiana, believe it or okay. not. Yeah. On the uh, lonely prairies of Eastern South Dakota, Danish immigrants. And so they started okay. a church of God. My grandparents were Church of God, Anderson, Indiana. But then my grandmother became Pentecostal. She joined open Bible churches. Okay. One in, in Brookings, South Dakota. And that's where my father grew up in that church. And then he became a minister with open Bible, which is very similar to Assembly of God. And uh, so I grew up in that. I went to uh, a Bible college that they operated in Des Moines, Iowa. And then I went to a seminary, a Baptist seminary in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and uh, eventually found my way to a PhD program in historical theology at Rice University in Texas, and then to Munich, Germany, studying with Wolfhard Pannenberg. Wow. That's, and I taught at Oral Roberts University for two years, and then Bethel College in Minnesota for 15 years, and then Baylor for 22 years. But yes, my background is definitely revivalistic. 
Yeah, that is it's interesting. And I think that, that even just tracing that your journey there, I think that that's part of why um, so many in the evangelical Wesleyan tradition connect with you. Because there's this sense like I obviously you've written a book uh, on Arminius. You've written a book against Calvinism. Like there, there's those type of things connect. And there's not as many non-Calvinist resources in the broader evangelical community. So you, I think you scratch that itch for a lot of us. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'll tell you the thing I'm most proud of that relates to this, though, is I actually sang a solo with uh, Bill Gaither one time. Oh, well, did you? I'm sorry, about a duet. That. A duet. A duet. Well, okay. Bill Gaither. Correct, correct oh, give, give us more of that story. <laughs> so he came to Truett Seminary, uh, and he was at Baylor University for their Innovators, Innovators Music Program. And he spoke in chapel at Truett Seminary. And afterwards, uh, uh, we had lunch and uh, he answered questions. And the dean asked me to go up and to the platform and, and put my arm around him and pray for him before we dismissed. And he said, let's sing a song together. And he started <laughs> in saying, uh, farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. And, you know, I knew the words. So I just joined in and we sang a duet together and the students mouths just dropped open they were looking <laughs> at us like we were aliens from another planet <laughs> yeah well of course it's interesting bill gaither it has a i believe has a similar history as he's a church of god anderson yes um, yes served on the board of anderson university so yeah, a lot of he's people a nazarene i think too oh, okay okay it's gone back and forth i think between the two yeah, that is it's fascinating. Uh, who would have known? I have somebody of Christian music uh, history standing also on this call. Yeah, I'm so, kind of an aficionado. Uh, it's a hobby of mine of studying uh, Southern gospel music, a lot of which is influenced by Wesleyan traditions. Absolutely. And, uh, I grew up going to the Nazarene camp meetings in West Des Moines, which is huge. Back was huge back in the 1960s and 70s, and Though we were Pentecostal, my parents would always go to the West Des Moines Nazarene camp meeting. And I was there uh, the night that Bill Gaither and the Spears premiered his song, The King is Coming. And it was amazing revival. It was just wow. absolutely amazing. The Holy Spirit fell on the audience, the congregation. People were rushing the aisles. And the wow. Spirit family sang that song at least 20 times. And I don't think the preacher ever got to preach. He was a well-known Nazarene preacher named Chuck Milhoff. Some of okay. your listeners might know that name. And uh, so I've always had a connection with the Wesleyan tradition. Yes. Well, I, I think part of where we are now, and it's connected to the book that we're going to talk about, your, your recent book that we're going to talk about, is, is how we kind of find where we are. And I think that that's part of what I've appreciated about your writing, even, even your kind of big scope historical pieces is it helps us think where we are as Christians, where we've been. And, and I hope then that leads us to where we're going and where we are right now in society, in, in the life of the church is dealing with liberalism. And let me just read the title of your book as a whole. I have it right here against liberal theology, putting the brakes on progressive Christianity. Now, even as I say that title, I'm sure that some people are immediately, Oh, I don't like this reactionary stuff. Oh, I'm not sure. And, and, and let's just talk about the very first word against a lot of people won't like that. Cause they say, Oh, our society, we have too many people talking about things that we're against. We need to talk. Let's just be positive. Let's find areas of agreement. But you make a good case for Christians being against certain things. So can you talk to me about that? Well, this was the second volume in a series, and there may be more uh, if God gives me life and, and uh, good thinking. Uh, this was the second in a series of books that will be against. The first one was against Calvinism. You may remember right. that. Yes. And so then I followed up with against liberal theology, and I have in mind possibly against fundamentalism, uh, against atheism. I don't think there's anything wrong with being against things that deserve to be for people to be against them. Uh, I don't think we can be only positive all the time. And I'm thinking back to Origen, the early church father, who wrote Contra Celsum, against Celsus, right. who was opponent of Christianity. So that's kind of where I get the, the title, uh, against Celsus which was one of his major works. And we know a lot about early Christianity from that book. 
Yeah. And, and there's a way that when we come to an identity, it, who we are and figuring out like who we're called to be at this time, that means in part identifying what we're not. Isn't that mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I just don't, I don't understand people who think that we can just be for everything. That's just not even possible. Right. And, and, and do, saying that is a contradiction in itself. I do see people who are, uh, who grew up evangelical and are drifting off in a liberal direction theologically. And that's what the book is about. It's not about politics at all. Right. It's about theology and doctrine and biblical interpretation. So it's a warning to students and others uh, who maybe they feel attracted. Maybe they've read a book by Marcus uh, Borg or John Shelby Spong or some other liberal spokesman or they've begun attending a liberal mainline church because it's inclusive. Right. And, and that kind of can seduce them into liberal theology. Uh, I have a nephew who went to a liberal Methodist seminary and I went and visited his classes, four classes one day. And, uh, you know, I really sensed the liberal theology there. And um, yeah, so this is a warning, I think to, I intended to be a warning to, uh, especially young evangelicals who call themselves progressive Christians, but don't see where that leads. Right. Unfortunately, it does often lead them into liberal theology. So let's talk about what liberal theology is in general. Some people won't like that we use that term. They might see it as a pejorative term. It's not helpful because it just puts people against others. But I've been, I'm starting to embrace it more because I think that that's what people often use themselves to describe who they are. Uh, but nevertheless, like I think that the idea of, of liberal is like identifying that as something as a placeholder to help us talk about a wider reality is helpful. I it, certainly it can be used on cable news as uh, like, you know, you know, having a cup of liberal tears or the liberals, the liberals, or liberal. but we're talking about something more specific. What, what do we mean? What do you mean when we talk about liberal theology? Well, of course I explained that in the book. So I want people to read the book, too, Okay, <laughs> but I'll give a, a very short synopsis. So liberal theology is a particular tradition that considers itself part of the Christian tradition, but really arose in Germany with a theologian and pastor by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And he really was the first professional Christian theologian. He helped found the University of Berlin. He pastored Trinity Church in Berlin, uh, who stepped out and, and dared to say, uh, we have to give up belief in miracles although he was a little bit coy about it, but we won't go into all of that. But he created a whole new form of Christianity that had not really been there before. Now, there were free thinkers, there were liberal thinkers, philosophers, skeptics, and people like Voltaire in France and so forth. But setting them aside, Schleiermacher was the first one who was really openly a Christian, claimed to believe in Jesus and to love Jesus with all his heart, grew up in a pietist home and school and everything, but uh, really, you know, turned away from anything orthodox and turned toward modernity as his primary authority, I think anyway. And, yeah. and he set in motion this thing we call liberal theology and all liberal theologians, and by the way, in the book, I only deal with theologians who call themselves liberals. So I'm not attaching a, a label to someone that wouldn't accept it. Okay, um, okay. But they all follow him in what I call theology from below. And that mm. means that human experience is the main right. authority. Right. So I, when I was uh, my started my doctoral work, the very first book that I had to read for a class uh, was Schleimacher. And it was at a, mm. a, a liberal Methodist seminary. And I'll say there were a couple of strong Orthodox Christians there as well. But nevertheless, it was his, his, his probably most famous book on religion, you know, um, Speeches to his cultured despisers. Right. And, right. And, and, and even in that, you get this, uh, just the title, like he's trying to connect to this, um, to, to the enlightenment world that yeah. is, is he's now living in. And, but, but like you said, this theology from below is what centers it. It's this, this emphasis on a inner feeling, but it's interesting to me that that was what, uh, a liberal seminary, that was the very first book they wanted me to read. Are yeah. you surprised by that? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I, I have had my students read sections of it. I've never required them to read all of it, but um, you know, the general response I got from most of my students was, what? How can he call himself a Christian, you know? <laughs> but he was, a, he was a very notable Christian leader of the time in Germany, and it spread quickly to Great Britain, to America, and many American mainline Protestant pastors and theologians and students went over there to study with him and then with others after him, like Albrecht Ritzel. Right. Uh, and others, Ernst Trelsch, and on and on and on. Oh, Adolf Harnack. I have to mention Adolf Harnack. So it really began in Germany, but it spread like wildfire to Great Britain and to America and other countries, and really caught on in the mainline Protestant denominations in the early 20th century and created this reaction called fundamentalism. And so for about 20 to 30 years in the early part of the 20th century, there was this conflict between liberal theologians and fundamentalist theologians. Now, the fundamentalists at that time were really different, I think, than fundamentalists today in many ways. They were just Orthodox Christians who were militantly opposed to the rise of liberal theology in the mainline Protestant seminaries, with good reason. I mean, they saw the dangers in it. And what it ended up is that all liberal theologians, all real liberal theologians, and that's what I explain in the book, what that really means. It's not just anyone who disagrees with me or I disagree with them or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, real yeah. liberal theology is a particular type of, of theology that I argue in the book is not Christian because wow. it really does not recognize the authority of the Bible or of Orthodox Christian tradition, uh, things like the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Hardly any of any liberal theologians believe Jesus rose from the dead and, and came out of the tomb. They reinterpret these things. They use the language, but they reinterpret it in their books and in their teaching. And I would say if anyone really wants to know, read the book, but then also watch on YouTube John Shelby Spong, who was a retired Episcopal bishop. And he was a major spokesman for liberal theology before he died not too long ago. And I talk about him in the book as well as others. You know, when you say, I mean, it's a pretty dramatic statement, but I, I think I think an accurate one, and I've made this on the, my podcast multiple times, that we're really dealing with a different religion. Um, oh, yes. And, and, and I liked in your book how you engage, kind of like the, the classic book of almost 100 years ago, Jay Gresham Masham, um, the in his book on liberalism, Christianity and liberalism. And, and he says a similar thing, but I like, I, I found it comforting. Again, this is what, why I've appreciated about your writing through the years is you're like, well, you know, Mason might've put me out too. <laughs> uh, so talk to me a little bit, but, but nevertheless, as the kind of classic text, you engage that throughout this book. Talk to me a little bit about, about, uh, Machen. So Machen was, um, Kind of the last in a dynasty of really conservative Calvinist professors of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary called the Old Princeton School of Theology. That's what scholars today call it. It really began in the early 1800s. And uh, the best known uh, person of that school of theology was Charles Hodge, who wrote a, a three-volume systematic theology. Well, after him, there were several others, Benjamin Warfield and so forth. And Machen was the last one and he left Princeton, um, the exact circumstances are unclear, but he left Princeton, either he was let go from Princeton or he voluntarily left and founded Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I say that he might have considered me liberal because um, I'm Arminian and he was very strong on Calvinism. And I think that he probably would think that Arminianism is at least a step toward liberal theology like a lot of Calvinists do. And I, I disagree, of course. Um, liberal theology is a different genre, a different type altogether mm -hmm. from anything orthodox. Uh, and when I talk about orthodox, I'm talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, the Bible as the written word of God inspired, uh, miracles. All of that is denied by liberal theologians or so radically reinterpreted that it's not at all the same as it always has been. Right. So they might say they believe in the resurrection, but the resurrection yeah. is is a feeling that we have. It's not. And it's as if I remember hearing Marcus Borg even say, like, well, it's as if we were just all the disciples are sitting around and this feels like Jesus is just here, you know, just with us. Right. And it's it's not. It's, so, yeah, they, they can say they believe in the resurrection, but it's not the same thing as the, the physical resurrection. One of the things is interesting and is like so. So 
the comparative function seems to be a reality we would deal with. So some people would look at me as conservative. Some people look at me as liberal, just like you indicated with Mason. Like this is like one of the challenges, but it's trying to find, is there this orthodox core? And you, and you highlighted it a little bit, but that's what makes it hard to say there is something that when you deny these truths, you're outside of the Christian tradition. Um, how have people responded? Like how, how, I know you've engaged liberals a, a lot, liberal theology a lot. Um, how do people respond when you make that type of claim? Oh, well, some of them are offended, of course. And some of them just dismiss what I say that, uh, you're a fundamentalist, of course, so we don't have to take anything you say seriously. Uh, I've had many, many reactions and responses. I think really serious liberal theologians, at least, are willing to you know hear what I have to say and, and consider it and think about it. And some of them, as I said in the book, have actually said, well, it may be that Christianity is evolving into something else. And I pick up on that in the book and quote one of the liberal theologians that I treat in the book. And I said, yep, it happened. Yeah. And they they saw it coming. We've stepped over a line. We're no longer really Christian. We're Unitarian. Hmm. Interesting. So Unitarianism, that's kind of like, uh, that would be a, a good term to describe this when, uh, in, in Unitarian historically functioning, like kind of a sect coming out of England is kind of an interesting thought, like what, what's connected them, but tell us a little about what Unitarian is Unitarianism is and why that's a good descriptor for liberal theology now. So Unitarianism began, uh, in England and in America in the late 1700s. A lot of congregational churches, a lot of Baptist churches in New England, for example, adopted Unitarianism, and eventually a new denomination emerged called the Unitarian Fellowship of Churches, and now it's the Unitarian-Universalist Fellowship of Churches. There's one not too far from where I'm sitting right now. Hmm. They're spread out all over the country. It's not a very large denomination, but the reason for that, I think, is that liberal theology in the mainline Protestant denominations really is, is essentially the same as Unitarianism. Maybe Unitarianism goes a step farther, and many Unitarians today, unlike at the beginning, don't consider themselves Christians. Right. So all the liberal theologians that I deal with in the book consider themselves Christians. But what I argue in the book is that what they really mean by Christianity is pretty much the same thing that the early Unitarians meant by Christianity. And it's Christianity without miracles. It's Christianity without the deity of Jesus Christ in any ontological sense. That is, he was just a man, but right. he represented God to us. He was a special kind of man uh, who God, say, adopted as his son, uh, but still remained a human being. Uh, yeah, so the the... The theology of the early Unitarians looks a lot like liberal theology to me. Now, of course, liberal theology today, 150 years after the beginning of Unitarian theology, has evolved and changed. Unitarianism has evolved and changed. But let me tell you one thing that I didn't really put in the book. So some Unitarian churches are proud of the fact that they accept Wiccans into their right. church, that they have Wiccans. And um, recently I was at a conference in Washington, D.C., and the dean of a United Methodist Seminary boasted publicly that uh, his seminary has Wiccan students. Right. I've, I saw um, somebody that our seminary, WBS, is connected to is um, the Institute on Religion and Democracy. And uh, Mark Tooley leads that group. And, and they have an arm that is uh, functions of analyzing what's happening in the United Methodist Church. And so they'll often highlight these things and so he has pictures and video from I, I won't name the seminary where uh hopefully it's not more than one but maybe it might be um uh, that that does that has that like they're proud of this offering classes even in wiccan mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so like what 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 this is the natural outcome of what's happening if you're open to everything now what's of course interesting this happened to me uh roger interesting i had um a few weeks ago i had a, a i'm calling make it in, within the Salvation Army, the denomination that I have grown up in, I'm six generations in in that organization, that church, and um, there's a little bit of movement towards uh, around the world of embracing LGBT, the LGBTQ agenda. And it's not, I, I'm not, I don't think it's like a majority, but it's there. And so I've called some of that out publicly. And as I've posted that in various places, I've been kicked out of 
the Salvation Army inclusive website, you know, <laughs> or the Facebook page, right? So they they their whole identity is connected to their inclusivity, but yet when I present a view that's different, uh, they're not inclusive of me. And I think that that's kind of the internal contradiction that comes with Unitarianism. So in the book, what I'm arguing is that the LGBTQ controversy in the churches is just the tip of the iceberg. Okay. And most people don't recognize that underneath there's a whole iceberg called liberal theology. Wow. And, and uh, this is the, the divisions, the splits that are happening in the mainline Protestant denominations and, and really kind of filtering out even into some evangelical organizations over LGBTQ inclusion is that tip of the iceberg. But people just weren't paying attention before. Uh, they weren't paying attention to the theologians in their seminaries that were leading in that direction at, with liberal theology. And so I want to roll back people's consciousness and, and say, look, folks, the real problem is not just that. The real problem is liberal theology itself. So um, why don't we look at the deeper dimensions of the problems in the mainline Protestant churches that are creeping out into other churches and denominations, even evangelical ones. And I'm shocked by what I'm hearing and experiencing about, you know, churches, organizations, colleges, universities that are traditionally evangelical that are, you know, beginning to adopt liberal views on things. What are some of those views that you see coming? It's not so much on the part of the faculty, uh, although there are some, I think. Um, yeah, I've had my experiences with that. But many of the students hmm. are saying things like, I don't follow Paul, I follow Jesus. Right. And I just immediately challenge that and say, wait a minute, how do we even know about Jesus? Paul wrote first, he was the earliest writer of the New Testament. And uh, how can you just toss Paul out? Oh, because I don't agree with him. Well, right. do you with everything Jesus said? He, you know, and uh, then I point out some things Jesus said that are anything but inclusive. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's dismaying to see liberal theology beginning to arise uh, in places where you would just least suspect it. Yes. It's interesting, like as that's coming about, like and as as we see this kind of world emerging and people like I, I think that this was the danger of maybe even the red letter Christian movement, right? That okay, I, I wouldn't say at that point when when that came around twenty years ago and Tony Kimpolo was pushing that forward, okay, you could kind of embrace it. And, but but then we see where he's gone as well along the way on the, on a, on a similar trajectory, sadly to see that, but it's, there isn't within, within the Orthodox tradition, the kind of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, there isn't a, a reality of thinking of one portion of scripture being more inspired than another. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is very problematic. And so like, and I, I've, I've heard this too. Like I just, I just disagree with Paul. Um, what's interesting to me is that on the sexuality discussion is so often even honest, um, scholars will suggest that they just disagree with Jesus and Matthew 19, that, uh, the creational foundation for marriage, um, mm -hmm. You no, know, I, I won't. I, I won't go through every chapter, but I wanted to highlight one, and I think it's really helpful because what you do in this book, and I want to encourage people to go out and get this, and you can find a link for it in our show notes. And I would love for you to to find this book. I think it'd be incredibly helpful. Um, and and again, friends, we're talking with Dr. Roger Olson, um, who has written a book called Against Liberalism and uh, Against Liberal Theology. So he, you talk about liberal theology in the Bible, liberal uh, theology's doctrine of God their Christology. But I want to talk about this one chapter, if we can, uh, just about liberal theology and salvation. What is um, what what is it that they offer as a, a, a soteriological foundation for what they're doing? Well, first of all, every liberal theologian that I've ever studied, and I've studied many of them and met many and had dialogue with them, they're all universalists. They don't believe in hell, except as a... Uh, Lack of God consciousness, as Schleiermacher put it, in this life. 
And some of them don't even believe in life after death. Well, that's a debate among liberal theologians, whether there's conscious existence after death. They certainly don't believe in the resurrection in any bodily sense. Um, But whether they believe that there's actually conscious life after death is a debate among liberal theologians, which I think is shocking. Uh, But none of them believe in hell. And they believe that everyone is already saved. Uh, So then what, what is the point of evangelism? It is to help people in their spiritual formation, I would say. They would use that term, spiritual formation is salvation. So growing in your ethical life and conduct, uh, being other-centered rather than self-centered, being concerned for social justice issues, uh, aligning your thoughts with God's thoughts uh, as revealed in portions of the New Testament, perhaps, uh, the Sermon on the Mount or something. But, you know, So Marcus Borg put it best. He said, what Christianity is all about, and therefore I interpret him as meaning salvation, is to love God and love what God loves. Mm. And you don't need some special grace for that. It's it's latent within all of us, the the opportunity, the ability. So salvation becomes a matter of turning over a new leaf, really, and deciding Mm. to follow Jesus, which sounds good. I mean, that's wonderful. We can all agree on that. And in the book, by the way, I say over and over and over again, many times, what's wrong with liberal theology isn't so much what they for are for, it's what they are against. Right. So they're for spiritual formation, and so am I. But they're against miracles, and they don't believe that God uh, intervenes. or against divine interventionism, and uh, they're against special grace um, given to some people, but not to other people, and so forth. So... Um, yeah, salvation, I think, is a, is a big problem because they use the language of salvation, but don't mean anything the same that conservative Christians mean or the Christians of all traditions have meant in the past. Right. And there certainly is differences with the way that we look at a doctrine of hell like there can. And I think you're not saying like 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 somebody like John Stott would affirm something like annihilationism. Uh, and, and, and in my tradition, we, we would have something that says like the eternal punishment of the wicked. It doesn't necessarily say conscious. I mean, there's some, but like even, even something like a stot, they would reject. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, they, like, they would call that divine capital punishment <laughs> annihilationism. Right. So, uh, you know, it's a complicated thing. It's, it's, and I don't get into all of it in the book. But by denying hell, I mean, in their case, they just don't even they don't even think we can know much about life after death at all. Mm. But what we can know is that God is merciful. And so everyone is saved in some sense. But I don't you know, liberal theology is very this world focused, very focused on this world and its history. And here's one way that I would put it. They're all for spiritual formation and ethics. But doctrine really takes a back seat. Um, there are no doctrines that are essential to Christian belief, to right. being a Christian. And, and that sounds like Unitarianism. You know, that, that's how Unitarianism evolved to the point where doctrine really went out the window and, and you didn't have to believe in any doctrines to be a minister and so forth. And so liberal theology, in my opinion, has simply followed that same path to where doctrine is just not really that important at all. Hmm. It's interesting, as you say, like they just like Marcus Borat says, it's not connected to doctrine. It's just following Jesus, which is kind of a, a, a chic thing to say. Occasionally, I, I'm just a Jesus follower. It makes me almost not want to use that term, though. I am a Jesus follower. That means right. that Jesus is resurrected. Uh, he's he's enthroned at the right hand of the father. He's returning and he's going to rule. I mean, this is this is a part of this is the Jesus that I'm talking about, but it's almost too vague nowadays to say I'm just a Jesus follower. Oh, yeah, I feel like yeah. it needs to be clearer. Yeah, I was speaking at a college, an evangelical college that I won't mention, uh, calls itself a university now out east. And um, some of the people there and it was a denominational conference that was meeting at this evangelical college and the colleges, you know, it's says they have three streams, Pietist, Anabaptist, and Wesleyan. And, you know, I didn't think I'd run into this, but when when we talked about what being a Christian meant, I said there's an element of orthodoxy. There's an element of belief. Uh, You can't just say I'm a follower of Jesus, and that's all that matters. There's a cognitive 
content to Christianity. And I got some pushback from some people there. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think that that's where that's where we are at this point. We don't tell me what I need to believe. I'll, I'll just live it out. And I think that that's uh, can come to like even the the problem of people saying, "Oh, you know, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words." Like as if Saint oh, Francis yeah. actually said that. First of all, but like that sounds really good because you you don't have to believe. This is what I've I've come to in my own study of my denominational um, the founders of my denomination, that William and Catherine Booth is that part of what motivated them and why the Salvation Army was in 50 plus countries before they died is that they really believed in hell. Yeah. They like they might be the principal doctrine of his ministry. And so they like, you no, know, if people are going to hell and we're going to say that we affirm this, we have to do something about it. And if you don't have that cognitive understanding, I, that, that can lead you to say, oh, well, let's just kind of, let's be nice. Let's just have, be friendly to people. Why would we ever want to say that some one person's saved and one person's not? So something I, I don't usually have time to talk about in these um, podcasts, and I don't know how long time, how much time we have, but in the book, in every chapter, I mention something called symbolic realism. Yes. And that's where I go a little deeper in the book than a lot of books would go on, on this subject. Liberal theology embraces what's called symbolic realism, though they may not always use that term, but that's what it is. Hell, in other words, is a symbol with power, but it the symbol doesn't correspond to any actual ontological reality that mm -hmm. has independent existence. It's a symbol of our alienation from God. Right. Same with the resurrection. Symbolic. It's a symbol. So they use the words, but to them, they're, these are words that attach to symbols, which are like images that have power. And I think Paul Tillich, a liberal theologian who I don't really use in the book because he was really German, he came to America, but most of the people I talk about in the book are American liberal theologians. But Paul Tillich uh, really gave symbolic realism a push, you might say, uh, by talking about the difference between a symbol and a sign. And a mm -hmm. symbol participates in the reality it symbolizes. A sign doesn't. So a stop sign is just a sign. It's not a symbol. Whereas, say... Uh, a swastika is a symbol, mm -hmm. a bad one, an evil symbol. Well, when you take that into Christianity, it can lead to, and I think it did in Paul Tillich's case and in these liberal theologians, mostly anyway, to where they use the, the words like hell and heaven, salvation, resurrection, even divinity of Jesus, even Trinity. Wow. But when you plumb the depths of what they mean behind the words, these are symbols that have power to transform, mm. but they're not to be taken literally, and they don't necessarily point to any actual historical events. Right. This is so helpful. I hope people will go back, and if you're on a podcast app or if you're on YouTube, just rewind just press the 30 second that's a button twice and go back and hear what dr olson just said this idea of symbolic realism is flooding our like our context at this point and, and um one thing is interesting is like i try when i speak with students try to convey the idea of like how we understand truth and how we form what is real generally it, i i kind of use the idea of the correspondence theory that that truth corresponds with something that is real, some, something that exists. And so if we're going to use words, and this is a kind of like the postmodern shift is like, okay, well, we can take words and they can mean whatever we want them to mean. Well, we're saying that that truth corresponds with something actual. And that is it. That's the challenge I see, um, like what you're highlighting. So I'm so, I was glad to see that emphasis throughout your book as well. It's really, I, I consider it my contribution to this um, study, not that I invented symbolic realism, but that I really discovered it as what I think is the essence of liberal theology. Hmm. I think you really have liberal theology without symbolic realism. It, it's at the heart or the core of liberal theology. It's so helpful. Where do you think that this will um, take liberal theology uh like so it's interesting to me well i'm following the united methodist church and the emergence of the global methodist church regularly i have guests on who are leaders in the global methodist church and some who are staying and um like what what i i feel like whatever it becomes is dying away 
and there's not much of a future to it. But I don't know if that's just me trying to be, have a triumphalistic side. Um, it seems like with as we talk about salvation, there's not an impetus for evangelism. I even heard a kind of interesting thing that came out on the, I, I think it was in um, Washington Post that indicated that um, if you find a church with a rainbow flag, it's generally, it's not going to have a nursery. Okay. <laughs> like there's a, those things correspond like that reality. So like what, what will, is there a future for liberal theology or will it eventually just die away and become an academic discipline for people in ivory towers? Yeah, I do think that liberal theology is largely becoming in spite of strong attempts by some liberal theologians, it's largely becoming religious studies mm. and uh, really losing its Christian what do I say, Christianity, and just yeah. becoming religious studies. But often, and I, I use some of the people who are trying to breathe new life into it, Gary Dorian at Union Theological Seminary, um, Douglas Otati at a Presbyterian uh, college, I believe, can't remember exactly where he teaches, one of the Carolinas, uh, are, are pumping out books that are trying to revive liberal theology as a Christian theology and keep it from just devolving into religious studies. They really want it to be a live option for Christians. But the problem is that the mainline Protestant denominations that have adopted liberal theology as an option, and even often as the main option, are dying. Mm -hmm. All of them are dying. And I just think that people in those denominations wake up eventually and, and say, this isn't Christianity or well, what I'm hearing in church really isn't different than what I could hear in a club or a fraternal organization right. thing, or, or one of the political parties. And so what's the point of giving my tithes and offerings to a church and, and coming to worship when I don't even know what I'm worshiping? Yeah. Because <laughs> in liberal theology, you know, God becomes so vague that you wonder if he's even a person anymore. Yeah, sure. I, I think they would be openly to move against that. I, I, uh, we're a part. Um, we're accredited like most seminaries through the Association of Theological Schools, which has. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know, the accreditation. I mean that that is something to think about. Uh, I, I, I shouldn't I have said it. that. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's helpful to have a credit, and it'll be interesting where things go. I mean, mm -hmm. in the next ten years, and as somebody now. Serving in theological education, we'll see what happens. But I, I sat on last year's um, uh, school for new deans, and mm -hmm. uh, I was in that. And I was there was probably I don't know, 20, 30 other new deans around. There was a dean from Harvard who was there, and she identified herself. And most people had his or her his their pronouns listed as well. But um, she was a, a Buddhist priest. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I had uh, others on that same meeting who were identifying themselves in, in like all kinds of interesting ways. There's, there's some Catholic priests as well. But it's like at, at some point what in that as we were talking through various things that we're all facing, the, the CFO got on. And I think probably most people are like, oh, my goodness, what was this going to be like? And it seemed like a nice guy. He gets on, but he showed what the trajectory were of various schools and they they delineate them based upon their theology at a certain point and he kind of said like a uh, mainline schools and show the difference that the one of the key differences is that and financially that uh evangelical schools have to actually tuition dollars <laughs> like there isn't much tuition money coming in for the mainline schools it's built on endowments and the, mm -hmm. the disparity is unbelievable but at some point like i don't know how they can keep existing without ever having students paying and what's happened is some of these schools have just are just losing students and they're almost exist as just a, an academy so i'm sorry i kind of went on a little bit of a rant there but i just i see that happening within in my discipline and I'm, I'm worried that people don't see what's coming and that's what's been so helpful about your book um uh, yeah i'll give you i want to ask you one other question not related to your book but do you have anything else you'd like to say about your book oh uh, read <laughs> no, it. i could say a lot yeah read it um yeah i i feel bad that anyone thinks that i'm just being against things because the book is really for 
Orthodox Christianity, and I make that point in every chapter that what my concern is, is to call people back to a sense of Orthodox Christianity. By Orthodox, I mean biblically based and traditional across the denominations, ecumenical, but believing in the deity of Jesus Christ as really meaningful, that he really was God and man both, God incarnate, pre-existed. I think that's the crucial pre-existence. And uh, all liberal theologians deny the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. And so I'm just trying to get people to think more deeply about what's going on behind the scenes that, that they're not maybe aware of and what liberal theology really is and, uh, and to uh, be vigilant about yes. it. Because I think a lot of, I'm going to get myself in trouble now, but a lot of administrators of Christian colleges, universities, and seminaries aren't vigilant at all. Mm. They're so concerned with institutional you know, survival and success and things like that, which they should be. But I hope this book will um, alert them to the dangers of professors, for example, like at one of the schools I taught at, a professor, actually a, a leading professor, told me he didn't believe in miracles. Wow. And this is a Christian institution. Yes. Well, how can you not believe in miracles? How and I didn't mean just modern miracles. He wasn't talking about like evangelist miracles and things like that. He didn't believe in miracles at all. He didn't believe that God ever did miracles. Wow. So would and he even affirm the resurrection? No. Jesus' resurrection? He, well, he couldn't. He couldn't. Yeah. He ruled out miracles, and that would be by definition a miracle. I wanted to pursue that with him a little bit more, but I didn't want to get into an argument either. And uh, so I waited to publish this book until I retired. Oh, Interesting. <laughs> Because in every uh, university and institution that I've had anything to do with that was any size, I encountered some element of liberal theology growing there. And I would try to alert administrators to it when I could in a collegial way. But it really wasn't easy to do without writing a book. And so I waited until I retired because I, <laughs> I didn't want to be a troublemaker and a troubler of Zion, as the old <laughs> language says. Um, rocking the boat and everything and getting into conflicts with colleagues and so forth. Um, but I wanted it to be out there and I wanted to say my piece and I, I had to wait till I retired to do it. And I was glad when I finally could. Interesting. I, I, I wouldn't have, I just figured you're responding to the moment. And so, I mean, this has been something that has been in the work. Okay. I'm not, I'm still going to keep on the book for a second. I, I, I was interested too, to, to hear you say, Earlier, you said they don't believe in the resurrection, none of the bodily resurrection. But I think when you're actually saying that, you were talking about the general resurrection. Both. The, yeah. So like, yeah, exactly. Both. And I think a lot of times people people don't realize that we're not even talking about a reality that can be experienced out like the, the basic Christian belief that there is a resurrection of the dead, that our bodies will again be raised like him, like we sing on on Easter, made like him, like him, we rise. Nope, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, okay, one here, other here's, thing. Here's the really strange thing that in a lot of churches, they'll sing Charles Wesley hymns, but I know the pastor doesn't believe it. <laughs> right. It, it's amazing. I've been a member of churches like that. And I quit as soon as I figured out, you know, that the pastor didn't believe any of that. Yeah, you, know, you said something interesting. I quit. And this is the point, like I've talked to some people who say, well, Andy, you know, so the Episcopal Church is doing this. So the United Methodist Church has ordained a a lesbian bishop. So there's this. Well, you know, this is uh, my my church is fine. You know, my local. And that's that's what matters. Um, What do you what do you how do you Mm -hmm. respond to that, Roger? Well, in this particular case, I found myself and my family in a liberal Protestant church. It happened to be Baptist. I won't go any further as to where or what. Yeah. Uh, but the but the liberalism was a little hidden. Um, mm-hmm. It took some discernment to figure out. And we were already members of that denomination. So when we moved to a new city, we joined the nearest church of that Baptist denomination. But the one we had belonged to, uh, which was in Tulsa when I taught at Oral Roberts University, was evangelical. That okay. church of that denomination was very evangelical. So we kind of assumed that the church near us in the new location would be evangelical, but I began to pick up on things 
for instance, the pastor led a Bible study on Wednesday evening on, Mar on the Gospel of Mark. And the first night, he said, now, I want you all to know that I don't believe in demons. Wow. And so afterwards, I went up to him and I said, um, I said his name. And I said, uh, you know, I, I can't wait till we get to the fourth chapter because I don't <laughs> know how you interpret that, you know, where the demons are cast into the swine and the swine go over the cliff and everything. And he just looked at me kind of funny. Well, later we had a conversation about things and he said to me, Roger, I don't really think any of that happened. Wow. So, um, yeah, and he explained to the Bible study group, and they didn't all seem as shocked as I was, that he thinks that all the demon possession stories in the New Testament are stories that could be explained by modern medical science, that they sure. were epileptic seizures or, you know, schizophrenia or something like that. And, uh, you know, after, uh, after maybe a year of knowing it was a liberal or that he was liberal, even if not everyone in the congregation was, after a year, I had to take my family out because I had a daughter who was, you know, moving on into youth group and so forth. And they were in youth group. They were studying a book by a secular psychologist, a popular psychologist that had nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I just finally couldn't take it anymore. And I didn't want to subject my family to that. So we went looking for an evangelical Baptist church, but it meant changing denominations because wow. in that particular occasion, there was no evangelical church of that denomination. Wow. Well, I appreciate you being willing to share vulnerably that story. I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, this is like real world things that you're having to uh, deal with on a regular basis uh, on, on this particular event. Now, I want to transition, but it's a bit, it, there's a connection here with what I'm going to say next. And this is how you've part of how you've helped me. And this is the great blessing of a writing ministry is that you and I haven't met till now. I've sent you a few notes of appreciation through the years, but, um, you know, we haven't seen each other. You haven't seen me. Um, I, when in your book, Mosaic of Christian Beliefs, uh, you it's a great book that kind of like moves through unity and diversity. And on your section on the church, you uh, discuss my denomination's um, stance on the sacraments. And in that, uh, I didn't like it at first because <laughs> and I didn't, ex I didn't exactly, you know, throw it on the ground or anything like that. But I, I wasn't happy be because you you indicated that there is it's almost a heresy of neglect. Now I've memorized that because I've used it. I've quoted you a few times with that. Um, and, and I think the danger that I see in it of, the, of our current state. And so I've been very public on, on this podcast in academic articles, popular articles calling for the Salvation Army to reinstitute the sacraments, not just because of you, but in part because of scripture. But it took me a few years working through it. Somebody who I admire theologically as much as I do with Roger Olson thinks that this could be something that is and neglecting the great tradition of the church, I need to be cautious. And here's why I'm concerned is that it is a move. It's a, almost a liberal move. Uh, what I see salvationists do, it wasn't William, William Catherine Booth. I don't think they were taking a liberal move, but nevertheless, they're able to say, I, I don't need this portion of scripture. I don't need to affirm. And, and the Bible's not clear and we can just kind of read it as we want our experience says we're saved. It doesn't matter. And there's a there's a danger that when we, if we have this sort of theology, has a little bit of room for saying we don't have to agree with the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We can come up with our own interpretation, our own feeling, our superior. This becomes a problem. So that's why I wanted to bring that up. So I want to thank you for that. Maybe I'll give you a chance to address the, kind of my, some of my Salvation Army friends as well. Yeah, I don't have any more to say to the Salvation Army about that. I think it's just um, something that they need to work through and think about. And by heresy, I didn't mean non-Christian, that they're not Christians. I just meant, and I think almost every denomination has something in it like that. So yeah. let me give you my own story. I, I had to leave Pentecostalism because uh, while I was in Bible college, I decided from my own study, the Bible and the great tradition that speaking in tongues could not be the initial physical evidence for everyone of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Okay. I continued to believe and still believe in a subsequence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit after conversion. It could be one minute after conversion, or it could be right. one year after conversion. But speaking in tongues is in the Bible not taught as the initial physical evidence, as our doctrine said, said when I was Pentecostal. So I began to ask questions about it. I began to let it be known that I didn't believe that anymore. 
And I even went to my uncle, who was president of our little denomination, and I asked him, is Billy Graham filled with the Holy Spirit? And he said, oh, of course he is. And I said, but he just published a book on the Holy Spirit where he says he's never spoken in tongues. And my my uncle said, well, he's the exception. (laughs) (laughs) And then I followed up by saying, well, if I teach theology in one of our Bible college, can I teach there there are exceptions? And he said, no. (laughs) So, you know, I, I have concluded over the years that every denomination has something in it. And, and what I think about that doctrine of speaking in tongues as the initial physical evidence is that it really comes out of modernity. Hmm. Why do we need physical evidence of a spiritual reality? Interesting. Because modernity says so. Wow. I can't think of any other reason for it. Wow. I never thought about that. Yeah, of, of, of how, and it seems like uh, maybe it's been a while since that happened that there's a backing off in, in many Pentecostal traditions oh, yeah. of that yeah. view. I think they still have it in their statement of faith, but they don't enforce it. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. And in fact, the denomination that I grew up in that told me to leave, so I oh, was my. to leave, uh, they've changed their statement of faith so that speaking in tongues is no longer the initial, but an initial. And yeah. Well, and you even brought Church of God Anderson. We said at the very beginning here, and you know their their belief is they're you know not a denomination, yeah, right. you know, and not they don't have members, and yeah. like the Salvation Army often doesn't want to identify itself as a church, but yet it's very clear that that's the best word to describe what, yeah. this, what that describes this. Well, Doctor Olson, thank you so much for your time here. I have one last kind of fun question I have for a lot of folks, and that's connected to my title, more to the story. Is and we talk a lot about theology, history, your testimony, but is there more to the story of Dr. Roger Olson that isn't often told? Do you have a a hobby that you don't talk about or something that makes you unique? Is there something Hmm. about you that's distinct? I love Southern gospel music. Okay. Uh, On my iPhone, I have 150 plus um, performances of Southern gospel music that I've downloaded, paid for and downloaded back when you could do that from iTunes. Now, there you go. It's different, but I have 157. They're old, uh, you know, gospel groups that I grew up hearing at home on records and on Christian radio and so forth. And I love Southern gospel music. Um, I wouldn't say that's a hobby, but kind of a pastime of mine is to listen to them. And as I'm driving or walking outside, sometimes I sing along with them. And uh, I love church. I'm dedicated to the church, not to any one denomination per se, although I consider myself a Baptist, but I'm very involved in our church and uh, right now candidating to be the preaching pastor of a church. Oh, interesting. uh, In retirement, I can't leave it. I can't let it go. I'm very much involved in church life. I blog every other day or so. I love to interact with people about theology. And uh, now that I'm retired, I feel like the you know, the limitations are a little bit off of me. I don't have to really worry too much about being, I don't have to worry about the organization I'm a part of. I can just say what I think. And yeah, interesting. The chips fall where they may, I guess. But yeah. most of my time is spent with my grandchildren. Oh, um, I love it. No, so if I, I, if I was riding in a car with you and you had your iPhone plugged in and we were listening to music and you found out I had never heard this group and I have to listen to this Southern Gospel group, which group is it? One of my favorites is the, uh, the Happy Goodmans. Okay. I you haven't heard them, them, I don't think. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they were Church of God, uh, not Anderson, Indiana, but Cleveland, Tennessee. And they were a family group. There were three, uh, see, two brothers and a wife of one of the brothers. No, maybe it's four. Three brothers and the wife of one. Anyway, back in the 50s and 60s, they were all over Christian radio and they gave live performances. The Blackwoods, I'm sure you've heard of the Blackwoods. Yeah, okay, I've heard of them. Okay, yeah, and um, the Spears, an right, related group. And uh, yeah, so those are some of the main ones. Um, the Hoppers are still performing out of North Carolina. And I've, oh, and the Cathedral Quartet. Okay, now, yeah, sure. Now, but oh my goodness, the Cathedral Quartet. I used to drive, my wife and I used to drive 100 miles. Okay. <laughs> So wow. Gaither homecoming. Um, yeah. All of those kinds of things. We used to uh, drive to attend those sometimes quite a ways. And uh, I, I've met Bill twice and we've had good fellowship with each other. And yeah, so those are the kinds of things you'd hear. Oh, and that's fun. Some that are a lot more quirky than even those, I would say. There's some really 
odd things on there. And odd clothes, too. Odd clothes. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. So <laughs> well, what Dr. I Olson, okay. yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you ahead. so much for your time. It is a real honor for me to talk to you. And I, as I said in, in my intro, I'm a fan and I just appreciate your ministry. It's blessed me. It's helped my teaching and, and my preaching through the years. So I appreciate you taking time to come on and talk about this book. Check it out, folks. And if you don't mind, share a link to this. Make a comment. Even if you disagree with something we said, share it. Let's have a discussion. Let's talk about this. I really appreciate those of you who do that online. And Dr. Olson, thank you so much for coming along. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.